The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter. So you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. Today we sit down with Dan Conway, who is a bishop in England. In the interview, we not only discuss how he leads as a bishop, but also his journey through a personal faith crisis where his shelf of belief tumbled down and how he pieced it back together with the help of others. Soon after he found solid footing in the gospel, he was called to serve as bishop of his ward. A big thank you for Arthur Bhutan for recommending that we talk with Dan. It turned out great. Now, before we jump into that interview, I want to request that you jump over to leadinglds.org and check out our most recent webinar with Dustin Peterson. I received nothing but incredible feedback for this webinar. Some even called it the best one yet. And you can watch it for free for a few more days at leadinglds.org on the homepage. To get full access to the webinar, you can find it in our core leader library by becoming a core leader. We generally request that you contribute $10 a month to be a core leader, but if you can only afford a dollar a month or $12 a year, that would get you access as well. We truly need your help to extend the reach and influence of Leading LDS. So go to Leading LDS and contribute today. And now, here is my interview with Dan Conway. Today, we're headed over to United Kingdom to talk with Dan Conway. How are you, Dan? Yeah, doing really good. Kids are in bed and it's, you know, so that's the happy part of my day. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, just past, uh, it's about one forty for me, and you said it's 8.40 in the evening for you, right? Yeah. Nice. Well, I, I hope today works out as well as uh, it, it worked out for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, where are you exactly located? So, I'm in Newcastle, so I'm like right in the northeast of England. We're about probably an hour or so from the Scottish border. Wow. And uh, Scotland's where you served your mission, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so what's the uh, what's the drive to the nearest temple look like? Uh, it's about a three hour drive. The actual drive is beautiful actually because if you go through across um, to Carlisle and down, you, you get it's a really beautiful country drive. And Preston Temple is our nearest temple. Wow! And so do you uh, typically organize temple trips? Uh, yeah, with the, with the ward to do that. Yeah, so we roughly have about three. We organize about three planned temple trips as a ward each year, and we hire like a coach. And we'll go as a ward and make an effort. And obviously people go there by themselves at different times, but we always have about at least two or three coach visits. Nice. Well, and we were uh, connected by one of your, was he a mission companion? Is that right? Uh, not a companion, but like a mission, missionary server. I mean, served in... Mission service. buddy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> cool. Arthur Boutin. I, don't, I always say his last name wrong and he's probably shaking his... his Bhutan. 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 Right. Bhutan. <laughs> ah, I'm just a naive ignorant american he's but uh, arthur's actually been on the podcast with his bishopric they up in uh, calgary they they talked to us about some things they're doing up there with a with a young bishopric and encourage the listeners to check that out i'll link to it in the show notes but uh, mission buddy and and as i am always looking for international leaders to talk to he said oh you've got to talk to dan He's a bishop in uh, Newcastle and what is your is it the Newcastle ward or um, uh, we're next over some North Shields so we're right on the beach on the coast. Oh man, I got to come visit. I hope you have like an extra bedroom because it's I'm really, yeah, it's <laughs> a really nice sandy beach. The northeast is lovely sandy beaches actually. Cold, freezing water, but beautiful beaches. <laughs> yeah, you don't uh, you don't go to the England for the beaches, right? I mean, other than to look at them, not to not to swim, anyways. Not really. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So tell me about you, Dad. As far as your 
What is it you do for, for work? So I work as like a digital marketing um, executive for a company, like a holiday company that sell like um, UK holidays. So mainly like caravan holidays and glamping holidays. Nice. And when you say holiday in American, you mean vacation, right? <laughs> yeah. And over right. here, like it's a big, because uh, obviously for different reasons, they call it a staycation. So uh-huh. where obviously encourage people to stay and have holidays along the basically all the different parks across the coasts of all the UK. Oh, nice. Nice. So tell me, just put you and your faith into perspective a little bit, uh, your upbringing, obviously international, we can't always assume that you were, you were born in the church, but uh, are you a convert? And how would you describe the development of your testimony? I would say, so I've always been a member my whole life. My parents were converts in their mid to late twenties. And uh, I was born a member of the church with my three brothers and we were raised up in mainly the farm Bracknell Ward and Farmer Ward, which is in the Red Mistake in the southeast of England. And typically like, always active, served a mission at 19. That was the age then and went to Scotland. And I've been a you know, regular temple attender and a generally active member. Got you know, married in the temple at 24 and served in young men's elders quorum, state young men's and now bishop. Yeah. And uh, so when you went to Scotland, they have a, a completely different type of accent. Yeah, there's a lot more. It's, yeah, it's like, I'd call it a harsh, kind of a quite aggressive in different parts. But yeah, but you know, great people. Yeah, for sure. Did the uh, did you pick up any of that as you uh, when you came you, home? Yeah, I think you always do. You always catch a few of the different slang and different terms <laughs> and different words and phrases. But they, you know, the food over there's like it's pretty crazy. They love like haggis and. Anything that can be fried, fried pizza, fried battered Mars bar, anything you can get fried in the chip shop. Nice. So now that you don't live too far from Scotland. So when you got your mission call, was it like a Utah getting a mission call to Idaho? Like, were you yeah, disappointed? <laughs> effectively. I don't think it's the same for everyone, but for most, probably about 90% of people in, in England or UK get called to a UK mission. You have about five minutes of disappointment. Oh, yeah. Then, so, <laughs> so it wasn't a shocker by any means. No, like, uh, like I was, I was, I was upset and gutted. But then, you know, after about five minutes, got excited, and you know, and you end up having a great time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But nonetheless, I imagine you enjoyed your time there, and it was a growing experience. What, what can you tell us about uh, the church in Scotland? Does it, how does it differ than in, uh, <laughs> in I'd say, England? Yeah, no, like it, so for England, a lot of the the stronger parts. There's different. There's various parts, like so the temple around the. The Preston Temple is like strong for the church in the Manchester area, and then then in the England in the south, where the southeast, where like a lot around Great London and Greater London, where there's a lot of work, a lot higher population, there's bigger that you know stronger stakes. But um, the northeast of England is probably similar to Scotland, where like the stakes are generally smaller, and the wards aren't massive. But when I was there, the Dundee like kind of certain uh, Dundee state was like a really strong stake. It had really good size wards. And there's about, I think, I can't remember, that, maybe three, three or four stakes. There's not too many. Where in England, you've got about uh, maybe just under 30 or around 30. Nice. And they, uh, so are they, do you get the sense they're on the cusp of getting a temple? I don't, they don't have a temple. No, right no, now. no. They still got a ways I to go. I can't imagine it happening for some time. Well, miracles happen, right? <laughs> yeah. Nice. So you, you uh, grow up pretty, uh, pretty typical traditional orthodox family uh jump through all the hoops go on a mission come home get married and uh and now you are serving as as a bishop in newcastle and uh and you're 32 years old is that right that's right yeah so is that uh i don't know for utah you know, i served when i was 28 and that was uh typical not typical i mean that's a, a younger age for you know with so many uh such a, a high density area of, of lds people is that uh is that typical yeah. to be called as bishop in your early thirties? I wouldn't. Uh, I would say I wouldn't say necessarily. Typical, like you know, there's been younger, there's been older. I'd say it's most of them are probably mid thirties, forties. But yeah, it's probably not typical. Typical, but you know, some do. That's great. So tell us about you. Sort of went through what you would describe as a faith crisis in your in your twenties after you. Uh, I assume this is the time after you were married in the temple. And this is becoming, uh, as we talked about before we record, more and more common among us millennials, right, that are sort of in that the 20s and 30s. And obviously, it's a different world. And so I think you'll bring an interesting perspective to this. But 
how did that originally unfold and kind of tell us the process of that? So for me, it was about uh, 2013 and I think it was the back end of 2013 thereabouts. And I just, it was around the time in the UK, there was a big like PR event about you know, the church where, you know, the church get faced with like lawsuits on a regular basis, you know, strange ones and different times. And President Monson was getting sued for, the church was being sued. I think it was President Monson was having to possibly come to court in England oh, yeah. about members paying that. tithing. It was a really, some member was suing about tithing, some like ex-member. And I remember like there was a lot of kind of different like, material going on online on different uh, blogs and websites. And I just kind of started kind of reading into it and just from there, I started getting a little, quite a lot into Mormon stories and getting into various kind of different websites that were challenging like the church and its beliefs. Not necessarily the kind of like, it didn't come across as like, you know, I think when you grow up, you think you have this perception that any material is like this evil thing, but it wasn't quite like that. It was like people who generally had maybe genuine concerns and they were just, they were, you know, they were kind of challenged in these different kind of sites. I started kind of reading a lot of them. And they were challenged to various, various parts of the you know, church and its beliefs. And it just, I think, it just um, gradually I started to really question every, like a lot of things, especially about church history and events that had gone on. And, like, you know, just typically about like you know, Blacks and the Priesthood, you know, Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith, you know, his wives and mistakes and different things and things that Brigham Young has said, you know, various things. And it just kind of led from there where I was kind of reading more and more and got really consumed by it all and really started to doubt my testimony. Yeah. And as you went through this process, did you find that, you know, it was in the news, you said it was a lot of this was happening in the news, uh, you know, with lawsuits and things. And so that sort of uh, created some curiosity to look deeper into what was happening. Yeah, so like part of me was like, what is this, you know, trying, like I said, trying to get to the bottom of like, what is this, who's this guy, or who, why are they suing the church about tithing? And that was kind of initially when I read into it, I was like, this is, that one like, didn't, like, I was particularly, like, I wasn't bothered about, like, it didn't really affect me, I thought it was a bit silly. Um, but then I just kind of started, I think it was always Mormon Think or something, it was something like that. And I just started kind of reading more and more about, you know, people who had left the church or people who were struggling and, and the different challenges and you know people and it just kind of I just started to read into it you know and I probably would say I was quite typical where I was naive to a lot of the stuff where I probably growing up in the church I should have made more of an effort and been more aware of my history and exactly what went on and what didn't and so I think some of it caught me off guard caught me a bit by surprise and there was some uh, some quite good evidence challenging like different parts of you know where the church had you know maybe made some mistakes or weren't quite right and leaders had said things and it really started to make me kind of to doubt and to worry. Yeah. And what were the, some of the, uh, the big feelings and emotions you were experiencing? I know a lot of people describe it as betrayal and, you know. Yeah. I think there is a part of that. I think, I don't know at the time, maybe I felt it was betrayal. Now I think the church have always, you know, been good at like, um, PR. And I think nowadays with PR, you have to be a lot more honest where, you know, you, public relations back in the day you could sweep things under the carpet and move a bit of time be forgotten but because of the age of information where everything's accessible on the internet you can't just sweep things under the carpet you know information is there then can't be hidden anymore and i just remember like kind of you know finding like various blogs and people to present an argument about certain parts whether it be you know joe smith and his wives and marrying a 14 year old and why he did it and you know the book of abraham was it a funeral text and just different things but they presented pretty challenging arguments some of it sometimes taken out of context and it really started to make me i was starting to really get upset and question like suddenly for the first time i was like is it possible that the church isn't true and you know i've got this wrong Hmm. and that really started to worry me and like kind of upset me because i've got this temple marriage a wife that's very active and we were active all my family, my in-laws, my parents, my, my brothers, most of them were active. And, and all this started to weigh on me, like, what, you know, what if this isn't right? And, you know, and I was really struggling with that. Yeah. And before I ask this question, I need to preface it that uh, I know that a lot of people, uh, Orthodox members will say, oh, well, you know, you're having these doubts because maybe you weren't reading your scriptures enough and you really forgot those things. But I guess what I want to ask is how does, 
as you were going through this journey of discovery of, of really questioning some of your your core beliefs in the church, how did it impact your your personal study? And again, I'm not asking because that's the, yeah. the reason, but mainly just how did you did you attempt yeah. to create a balance there? Yeah, to be honest, I think that, that was I was probably typical where you, once you start to get consumed in it, like you start to you start to really get into, it. and that's all for me. That was all I read. Like I just wanted more and more the people who were challenging the church and its beliefs. And like it, I don't know, it, it really got into my system. And when people say, well, you need to read scriptures and you, you need to start reading the Book of Mormon, you need to start praying, and that, that's the last thing. And anyone out there who's maybe dealing with this in any way, as a leader or a family member, the last thing you want to say to someone is, you know, you need to read the Book of Mormon. When someone's like having serious doubts and not even sure if it's true and starting to think, like, is this like written, made up by people? The last thing you want to be told is to read it and to pray about it. Just that's not how it like that wouldn't didn't work for me. Yeah. And why would you say that? Just because I mean, obviously, every leader hopes the individual is is turning to the scriptures. But you're you're saying that as far as like that's the solution. Just do that and it'll all be fixed. Yeah. So that like isn't like where exactly I think people would say this is the solution. This is the only solution. And really, there's there's other ways. And for me, what helped me was uh, people talking to me and helping me answer my questions rather than just brushing off the questions I had as anti-literature, but asked me what the questions I actually had, what I specifically was struggling with. They were, they were split into two camps, people who would get defensive and tell me to read and pray more, where some people who, were, who understood that that's, that's not really necessarily the best route, but to uh, yeah, sit with me, ask me for my questions and to see if they could help me. Yeah, so they they approach it a little with a little more empathy, right? To yeah. really want to understand what you're wrestling with. Yeah, and again, some people would get defensive and were would get really upset and funny. Where others would would accept that, like I was really struggling, but for me, it was a genuine, genuine concern and worry. And they were they weren't harsh or said harsh things. But my bishop at the time, like he was really really cool about it. Like he said, okay, and he wasn't forceful or hot he was just like really kind and really nice about it you mean and was really patient with me and didn't pressure me in any way and I liked that and I had like you know friends and family who particularly family member who said you know I remember one of my dad and one of my brothers was like they're upset and they were defensive we're trying to give me some strange advice from one of my brothers said look you know let's sit down let's show me exactly the questions that you're struggling with most and let's just try and like look at them yeah and did it take a while before you could really, you really felt comfortable being open with uh, friends, family, and leaders uh, with some of your? Yeah, I don't know how it's everyone else, but I'm guessing most people are similar to a point. Everyone, obviously, everyone's slightly different, but for me, I was struggling silently for a number of months where I was reading, gradually, gradually got consumed into it more and more to the point where I was having serious doubts, and I wasn't, I was really questioning the church and its truthfulness. The Book of Mormon, the, you know, the prophets, the leaders, the organization, the you know, finances, and and I think uh, just it, for me, like it just kind of that's how it kind of gradually went, and I and it was just gradually and eventually after a number of months when I was really having such serious doubts, I then confided in my wife and said, "Look, this is how I'm feeling. I'm I'm really struggling. I've got some concerns," and then I confided in some my close family and my leader. And I'd, I'd recommend that to anyone that's listening because I know lots of people sometimes they struggle silently for months and then just decide they're cutting off and they don't want any explanation, they don't want anyone to talk to them, they don't want anyone to help deal with it. They've made the decision, that's it. But for me, I kept going to church, attending. I saw really good things about the church. I loved about my children being there. And it was just, I think that would help me being open. Yeah. And I, I mean sure there's pressure that builds as you keep this inside and don't talk to anybody pressures building and building and either going to talk about somebody or you know it's just unhealthy yeah. right yeah because at the time i was um in elders quorum and in fact as i was like going through the, the middle and the peak of my struggle i was called as elders quorum president and like i, I remember the interview i didn't say anything at the time to state president um but i was desperate to kind of and I was like literally almost part of me was ready to reject it really close to doing it and uh, it would, that's it like I was just kind of feeling I had just serious doubts I wasn't you know here I am being called Zelda's called president to teach most weeks or you know to teach regularly 
and to help people, you know, come unto Christ and be a member of the church. Now I am struggling thinking, do I even want to be a member of this church? Do I even believe the things? And so that was, there yeah, was a pressure. And, and, you know, to, to my core members, I, I had to kind of, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't telling them, I was telling certain people. So it was, that pressure was difficult. So how, when you were extended the call as Elders Corn president, uh, how did you say yes when you're in the midst of these doubts? Uh, what? Literally, my, I was screaming inside saying no. And then I just couldn't bring myself at the time to say no to the state president. I didn't also want to get involved at that point. I had certain leaders and friends and family. And for me, I didn't want to make an even bigger deal of it. So I accepted the calling. And again, I hadn't quit church. I was still attending. I was still going. And I was still open. I hadn't closed off completely for church. I hadn't said, right, I made my mind up. But I was having serious doubts and I was worried I wasn't ever... I was worried that the church wasn't going to be true and it was all, for me, it wasn't going to be right. And I was worried for that, but I kept going in hope. There was part of me that still hoped it was right. And so you uh, you just said yes because you couldn't bring yourself to say no and move on with this calling. How long were you Elder Scorn president? Uh, I'm trying to think. Two, probably uh, 2013, thereabouts. 2000. So probably, I'm trying to think what that would be, so until about a year ago. So. A good three or three and a half, I don't know, three years, I don't know, maybe longer. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure the dates in my head. And so during this time, you sort of had a, a rebound of, of faith as you served as Elder Scorn president? Yes. Yeah, so I continued to serve, was struggling, but still teaching, still trying and to continue. You know, I hadn't made a final decision. I hadn't decided, like, that's it, it's not true. I was having serious doubts and I, I was more on the side where I was. I was starting to be convinced that it wasn't right. Maybe the church wasn't right. These things weren't true. You know, it was a great organization, lots of good things, but when on, the, on the balance of things, it wasn't right. And that was, was had me seriously worried. But what really helped me, like I said, was having leads. And I, um, particularly, someone was helping me answer my questions. So I took my questions to them and they helped me get some serious answers. And it helped for me to have, you know, you can't answer every question, but I got some really good explanations for the struggle, the questions I had struggles with. And for me, I'd, for, you know, about the book of Abraham, you know, the priesthood and race, Joseph Smith's wives and, and various, top, various other topics. And I managed to gradually get answers for most of them. And some of them were like answers where like, in hindsight, I've been looking at too much of, you know, one argument against the church, but not looking for, and there was like some good evidence for, and it was just kind of like I said, having a bit of the balance and just seeing where things had been taken out of context. It was, I was surprised how common that was, mm. but also sometimes where, you know, hands up the church leaders and stuff had made mistakes and there wasn't an answer for it. And that helped. But for me, ultimately, that helped and that helped kind of make me feel a bit better, but didn't still solve my problem. But what changed me a lot and probably was the game changer for me is having when some of my serious friends and leaders were helping me. They shared some really incredible personal experiences. And I knew these people when they shared some of the most, some of them had seen visions, some of them had seen angels. Some of them just just shared with me some of the most incredible stories, and these were good people who I knew wouldn't lie, and I, I I believed it. I felt an incredible spirit when they would share it, and that really helped me start going back in the right direction. Nice. So, and I kind of want to ask you more detailed as far as you said you had people, you know, helping you with finding solutions, faith building solutions yeah. to some of your your or faith building information to some of your uh, questions. What did that look like? I mean, did you have a set appointment? I mean, at this point, your your bishop was aware of it. Uh, did you have like yeah. friends or somebody you met with regularly or that you had a, a, yeah. you know, a set appointment that you'd always meet and talk about this? Or how did that uh, look like? It'd be more in the form of like, it wouldn't. So I had like a friend who wouldn't necessarily be set appointments, but we were good enough friends where we'd arrange to meet or we'd arrange to talk. And, you know, he said like one day we went out for like a ride on the bike. And we would talk, you know, we'd kind of walk and talk, have a ride, stop. And kind of took just on a personal work. It was more informal. And, but looking after me, looking out for me and, and my concerns. My bishop, like, he was really kind about all, but struggled with kind of answering the questions where other, you know, uh, leaders kind of, who were a bit more kind of, they're more aware of the history and the issues and had done, you know, maybe done their homework in the past. And they, you know, it was more kind of those appointments kind of talking and, it was good because they would show me like where that maybe they had struggles with themselves. And I think they might, maybe they had, you know, prior, you know, years prior, but 
they would show me sources and talk to me about them and and that would when I saw like like official church sources and showing things that really answered the kind of some of the issues I had and like it really helped yeah and I would imagine I mean at no point did you uh, you know did you find every perfect answer to a lot of these questions I mean you just sort of created a new perspective and context to look at look at it all right yeah so like I was in a really bad place where like you know I, I really was I was starting to lean more towards that the church wasn't right and I was starting heading that way I'm certain that that's the way it was going to end the way where things were going then I started to meet with some of the like um, these leaders who looked out for me and started to take the time there were two main people who like kind of helped me through questions and then in different times like I said they would share experiences and other people who became aware of my struggle and they would talk, you know, one shared a, you know, kind of vision he'd had. And these are people I know and trust who are good, honest people that would have no need to lie. There was no benefit of them. Like, and I knew I was going through all these doubts and they would share these experiences. And one shared experience, like I saw this, he saw an angel in the temple and it was just like this really, these incredible experiences. And yeah. I just felt, an inc- I just, like the only way to describe it was like, I'm having all these doubts and these people shit and they help me answer these questions and that's helping rationalize and helping me feel a bit better. But then they shared these spiritual experiences and I'm like, you know, at this point I'm like fighting the whole spiritual side, but I couldn't deny how I felt. And it, I just felt an incredible witness to my heart when they would share these really sacred experiences. And it just, it was so comforting at the time, lean, almost kind of leaning on someone else's testimony. Yeah. Um, but you needed that then, for a while, right? Yeah. But then came like a point for me where, so I, I, in a sense, I could maybe have been leaning on other people's testimony. So I started to head back. I felt like, no, I know these people are telling the truth. I know these experiences are real. I just can feel of it. I know these people would, you know, are telling the absolute truth. I just know they are. And so I started to continue to do the right things. And I felt better about it. And two things happened that were like key for me. So I started to feel better. And I went to a temple and we went for a week. And my family and I went for a week with the kids. And I had this strain, this amazing gradual experience where I just had this, it was like, again, like, you mean, I was this person having doubts, but starting to mend a bit. And I'm in the temple and, and they, we talk about this still small voice. And for me, that's exactly what it was, just this still small voice, like kind of reassuring, almost just whispering on a regular basis that week that this is right, this is true. And it like almost kind of melted a bit of like the kind of doubts I was having. But yeah, that temple week felt great and I was heading towards a better direction. But for me, like a pinnacle point was I was teaching Elders Quorum. At this point, I wanted, I felt like things were going the right direction. I felt like I, I was starting to believe the church was true, but I wasn't 100% there. I wasn't still certain. I was still kind of struggling somewhat. And I was teaching a lesson and we had a missionary that was struggling. I knew he was struggling with church and struggling with testimony. and. I felt like I should share my experience of how like I'd had like a witness of Joseph Smith as a prophet um, when I was a missionary. And it's funny because even I was still like not particularly 100% there or, you know, being an active member of Healed. But then as I started to share the experience, I had just like an incredible, one of the most incredible witnesses in my life where it just, it all just melted away every fear I had. It was just a witness that it was all right. It was all true. And that was like a, the massive turning point for me. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful, and that's interesting because you said you you wanted to share a an experience with that missionary about a witness you had from from your mission about Joseph Smith, right? But in the yeah. moment of sharing that, you were sort of doubting that same witness. Yeah, it was more like because I liked. I remember he was a nice lad, and I remember thinking, like, having just like kind of that you know that compassion. I was I was concerned. It's like. I knew like he was worried and I thought you know I know this shit this story this experience that I had when I was in a similar situation might help him but then in the back of my mind thinking I'm not even certain you know, myself you know what I mean I felt you know time and place I just felt like you know I'll share it and as I shared it you know it was almost like I just this to anyone that would be listening to this you know this podcast and that is a struggling or isn't a member would like think yeah that's what you're saying that yeah, you feel like it's true, but what about it? But like, I can't describe it. I'm like, words can't describe it, but I knew so clearly and felt mind and heart above all doubt I'd ever had that it, this was true and it was right. And it was just like, 
just melted every doubt I had. Yeah, I love that. And and the reason I love how you're articulating that, you know, you, you kind of mentioned it, it just doesn't have words. You know, it's amazing to me how powerful that witness can be when it's not explained in the same cliches that we hear, you know, from the pulpit at times, you know, that it really, yeah. and so I appreciate you articulating that in, in a different way. So looking back on that, so that sort of, that was uh, when you're elders quorum president, and did you go from elders quorum president to bishop? Is that right? Yeah. And so as you look back on on that experience of kind of going through that faith crisis, and and you know it's hard to use that term just because it seems like oh well that's fixed now you'll never have to worry about that. I mean obviously it's an ongoing <laughs> journey of discovery and questions and development, right? But as you look back, what did you now sitting in the in the chair of the bishop? What did you learn about that experience that uh, you now approach the development of testimony or doubt differently? It's totally been a blessing in a sense. Like I regret now in some ways that what I experienced and what I put my wife and family through. My wife it was a real struggle for her for a number of months, and and I regret that. But now I look at the positive is that that experience has been very beneficial, not only for me, but for, you know, as a bishop, I, you know, I do have members of the congregation that are having their own faith crisis. And it has helped because it's, it's a bit where like I know how they feel and I know everyone's faith crisis is slightly different, but a lot of it now, most are to do with church history. And I've been there in a sense and I know how it felt. And I know that just tell them to read, like we said, like to read for me, to read the scriptures and pray more doesn't didn't cut it for me and I imagine for them it doesn't cut it for them so we discuss it and I explain what helped me and that has helped that has helped massively and I think as well when I called as bishop I had like another experience that I kind of really kind of you know gradually I've had more experiences you know several like key witnesses and that have made me even more you know more never know the church is true. Like I know more so now than never have. Like I look back now and I see the person that I was starting to become. My morals started to was starting to change the way I looked at things. And I didn't like the person I was becoming then, but now I look back and I can see how I was starting to become quite a selfish person without realizing. And but for me, like I said, a key witness was getting called as bishop. By this point, like I gradually, you know, I knew, you know, I knew for certain that church was true. And I had like, it's weird because when you're going through a faith crisis, you doubt a lot of your experiences you had previously. And as I was basically just maybe six months before I was called as bishop, I had this really strange dream. And in the dream, like we were, like we were in a, it was like a church building and there was a feeling of excitement across the people there, the ward. And I just had this overwhelming feeling that it was going to be me as bishop. It was this really overwhelming, sweet feeling that, you know, that I wasn't called as bishop. And I remember, you know, finishing, like waking up and thinking that was really bizarre. And I think, I remember thinking, I'm not going to say this to anyone. And I thought, and part of me was thinking, you know, Dan, this is, you just weird thinking, dreaming about that kind of stuff. And I didn't ever think, oh, this is going to mean I'm bishop. But it reminded me because about prior to that, prior to my faith crisis, I had a, a similar dream where I was being interviewed by our state president to be called as bishop. And again, I never told anyone about these dreams because, you know, I didn't want to expect it and didn't want it. <laughs> yeah. And then like six months after the kind of the last dream, I got called as bishop. And again, it was kind of like just another witness to me. And interestingly, when I got called in the morning of the day I got called as bishop, my first counselor he got up and, you know, as typically you do when you're a new bishop is called, they ask you to share your testimony. My first counselor got up to share his testimony and he's not the type of guy to share like experiences and he's quite like a reserved guy. And there were some people who share their experiences constantly like, man, please stop it. <laughs> yeah. The people who share their most sacred experiences every week in, <laughs> in sacred meeting. But he got up and he said, no, like I feel I need to share an experience that happened. I have to try and control it because... I can feel it now as I talk about it. But he got up and he said, I had a dream last night. And all he knew at this point was he had an interview with the state president on Sunday morning and he didn't know what for. And so let me just make sure I I follow. So this is, this was the sacrament meeting in which you were sustained as bishop. 
Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I just remember. Yeah. So, and then he got up and he said, "Look, I had a dream last night." He said, "I woke up at three o'clock in the morning." He said, "Bizarrely, like I looked and the clock was there exactly three o'clock." He said, "In this dream, he said I had a dream that I was going to get called as first counselor in the bishopric, in this new bishopric." And he said, and I shared this with the stake president this morning in our meeting. And the stake president said at this point hadn't told me who the bishop was going to be. And so he said, look, you know, Keith, if you don't mind me asking, can you tell me who that stake, you know, the bishop was in your dream that you're going to be called as a first counsellor? And he said, you know, it's, it's Dan Conway. And the stake president this time, you know, confirmed that that was true and that that was who was going to be called today. And for me, it was just a further witness. And for me, I'm sure it would be helpful as I've served as a service bishop to remember that, I, you know, hopefully I am called of God. But for me, it was another witness that, you know, as crazy as, and we all go through these faith crises and it was real as anything when I went through it, but no more so than ever that, you know, that it's true, you know, and that, you know, God works in amazing ways. Wow. That's, that's great. And what a tender mercy for you to just uh, have another witness of, not just your call, but uh, the confidence that the that the Lord had in you in, in serving in that capacity. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, anything as as far as the you know your the, the years of your faith crisis. Any anything else point or perspective that we didn't cover that uh, we need to mention before we move on? I think there's there's several sources that I think people should be aware of. Like I think the main one is like um, Fair Mormon, and quite a lot of people be aware of it. Some won't. I'm surprised to this day when I. Most council members, like how like a lot of them, don't know Fair Mormon, and although not officially sponsored by church, there are some really good people who run it. Some you know some really great members, and they have some people who made some really good, you know, found some really good answers to some of the struggling questions that people going through faith crisis are. And there was like a real good database of kind of you know they don't they, and they freely admit they don't have answers to everything, and they're trying continually to grow that and try and find more information, but. They offer logical, rational answers, not the spiritual go pray, read more, but they'll give you, you know, what you want most is when you're going for that crisis is to have some logical understanding of why, what some answers to it. And they provide quite a decent amount of answers to some difficult questions. Now, as far as you're called a bishop, is there, I mean, it's incredible. Some of those dreams and uh, such, I know that uh, I ha- I didn't have any dreams and it uh, sort of hit me out of blindsided me a little bit but uh, you know not that every bishop is going to should expect those types of dreams but nonetheless when they happen it's such a, a faith affirming uh you know story to listen to um so when you uh you were serving as elder scorn president and just got a call from the stake president what, what do you remember as far as that experience of receiving that call um as to, to serve as bishop um to when I got the call to when he went to interview and to extend the call as bishop, right? Know? Yes. So yeah, like again, he, I got a, a voicemail from like his, uh, I think it's his ex set saying, "Look, um, the bishop would like to meet with you and your wife." And at that point, when I was thinking about it, it was just I probably I sensed I I felt it was I knew what it was going to be because I know what for one. They only really interview you and your wife when it's like a significant, like, you know, calling like bishop. And I knew, and obviously at this point I thought, okay, now this dream might be real. Maybe there was some meaning behind it. But again, I didn't, I didn't say anything to my wife because the last thing I wanted to do was like, that, hey, you know, I had this dream, you think it's going to happen. And we had a suspect because our bishop had been serving quite a while. He'd been serving about nearly nine years. So we knew before, you know, it called to me with my wife, you know, this, you know, St. Brennan wants to meet um, me and my wife and we just kind of had a suspect that could be it. But didn't want to say for certain. And when I met, he obviously was aware of my struggles, you know, what went on, but he was, it was a really interesting, again, like really interesting meeting and it was really spiritual and it was, he came to our home and spent time talking, spoke with my wife first and spoke with me and it was a really, like, really um, nice experience. I don't know if that's necessarily answering no, the question for that. Right. How, how would you, what were you kind of asking? No, that's I'll exactly, that bit if you want. Uh, I'm just curious about that, that exchange and how it was set up. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, you mentioned your stake president, uh, it was aware of some of your past struggles. Uh, did it, 
did you feel like you had to uh, reaffirm your beliefs in that moment or was there any, because um, I'm, I'm just thinking of those leaders out there that, you know, there's someone that, who seems like they could serve as a, a bishop, that confirmation is there, but they also, you know, if somebody's really struggling with, with some, uh, some doctrinal or historical doubts, you know, maybe it's best to let them unwind those. So did you feel like he had, he, you had to reaffirm, uh, where you stood with your testimony? And, uh, he was really good. I didn't for him actually. Um, like he was, he was really good about, I think, you know, my bishop would you know, update him on a regular basis. And then, what happened? We'd had like some, we'd had like some success in our elders' quorum, and just like seen some really good kind of, um, you know, some some good growth in it. And I think he saw it positively. He, he could see like for, the way it would have worked, the way he would have seen it, was that like, um, I got for me like I got called as elders' quorum president, was really struggling, overcame the faith crisis, and then really got to work with the elders' quorum and. At this point, it was like being a re a rebaptized member. I was like, it was, you know, when baptized members are on fire and they're they're full of they're they're really buzzing. And I was like that. I kind of rejuvenated, and I was like had a stronger conviction, and I really like put all my effort into Elders Quorum, and we just had some really good success. I mean, we saw some great people receive the Melchizedek Priesthood, and we really kind of helped. It was just a really good time. I know the state president when he interviewed me was like impressed with you know what our elders corner achieved and i had like a, don't know i had like two really good counselors and they were excellent and it wasn't that we were amazing people do you mean but it was just we were all really trying we were all working for the same thing we we're all spiritually in tune you know trying to be in tune and the lord really blessed our work and i think he saw that saw the work that had been done and i think in from his eye and he thought he sort of saw that i was helping direct it so i think he knew at that point he was assured that Things were good, and when we when we had our meeting, and I shared my my dreams with him. At that point, I was like the first time I'd shared it with anyone. My wife was there, the state president was there, and I think that kind of probably reassured him there at that point. So I think we felt the yeah, spirit. Yeah, that's great, and and I love you know stories like that because I think I, I worry sometimes that you know of course normal it's it's completely normal for a lifelong member to suddenly have some serious questions and doubts and sort of wrestle for a time with different information. But the the worst, the worst result of all that could be that they are suddenly stigmatized or they walk around with a scarlet letter yeah. thinking, well, you know, he's, he sort of had some questions in the past. So, you know, let's, let's not uh, call him to anything too influential. Right. And, uh, but it's, it's good to say it's a really that, good that, point, that that's happening and, and we have to have faith in that process that uh, those testimonies continue to grow and mold and, and develop, right? Yeah, no, I think it's a really valid point. I think there's people who probably do doubt that because they had a faith crisis that there will be that stigma and they'll be overlooked, not necessarily overlooked. So then, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of like kind of being overlooked and like, you know, considered being a bishop or a state president or whatever, yeah. you know, high council as a promotion, you know, it really isn't such a case. But like, yeah, like he wasn't like that at all. He was really understanding. And I think, you know, good as a church, we believe in change. We believe people can radically change. And we, we've all seen people radically change as people, you know. And I think it's something that it can be difficult. Sometimes we have that stigma where someone was renowned for being the world's worst home teacher and now they're amazing. But I think we have to practice what we preach, you know what I mean, and believe that like people can change and they do change and avoid stigmas. Remember that people, you know, that this was what this life is about, isn't it? Becoming a better person and changing than we do. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, uh, now you've been bishop for about a year now. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, I was joking with before that you should have it all figured out by now, but uh, that's <laughs> definitely not the case, right? <laughs> no. Nice. But you you definitely have some different focuses and things. But how would you describe the first year? What was it like? Uh, you know, being called, uh, going yeah. from elders quorum to bishop and then uh, starting starting to run the show. I think, interestingly, like, I think there was a case where like my previous bishop, like he was a really good guy and he'd been in the ward for nine years and that's, you know, the ward, he was very solid, you know, very steady and the ward really you know, grew as a result. And there's definitely a case where like the ward was so used to it. Not that I, I, I made sure for me, I made sure I didn't do introduce radical changes. So I realized that, you know, he'd been a bishop for nine years. There's a lot of th- reasons he did the things he did. 
and it, I made sure for the first few months to keep everything as it was. You know, there's so reasons that after nine years they were doing stuff. He wasn't just living in the ward for nine years. He had been bishop for nine years. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's quite the uh, yeah. administration to take over. Yeah, exactly. And like, you don't be a bishop for nine years if you're bad at it. So <laughs> I felt there was a little bit, I was a little bit daunted, like kind of like taken over, but I have to give it to him. And I, and I think we'll agree sometimes when a bishop gets replaced, there can be, and we've seen it from Tom Tom where the previous bishop, not necessarily gets bitter, but like, why is he doing that? I did like this. I mean, he's, you know, and the kind of, can start to kind of criticise a new bishop. You no, know, I think we've all seen it from time to time, and it, uh, that applies to you know various leadership positions in church. But he was excellent, and again, that's another thing I give him. He was only supportive. I think maybe after nine years, he was like fully relieved that it was it was <laughs> you know it was finished. But he was only a gentleman about it. Like for the first, I'd say the first three months, the first two months especially, I had to call him, I had to speak to him about certain things and get his advice and. I never ever felt that like he was what you know criticizing me or that were whispers going around the world that like I was doing things differently to how he was and it was wrong. But he was really good, and I think that is a really important point that you know that we don't you know if there is a change, you used to be in a call and someone else takes over. You know, don't ever criticize. Just allow that person to be that person, do the call they've got to do. Yeah, I love that. There's such a, and that's one thing that sort of gets overlooked. You know, we. We've assumed these transitions just happen and the new guy leaves or the old guy leaves, the new guy comes in and carries on. But there is sort of this uh, this uh, dynamic that happens between the new and the old bishop that you have to be aware of. And the older bishop can, can be so encouraging when he's supportive. And even though he, he sees uh, that something's not going to work, you know, but it still encourages and, and sustains that leader and, and is an example for other members of that ward to sustain the new bishop. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, no, like he was excellent at it. And he's still in the ward uh, there? Uh, yeah, like they do, typically they called the old previous bishops onto state. But he was called on to state your men's. Oh, great. great. Um, so, yeah. So he's, he's still in the trenches with you. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, like I think and he made a conscious, I think he he was, he made quite a conscious effort to kind of, to be out, not necessarily to be out the ward because he couldn't stand me being there, but like, to be out of the ward to allow me to be the new bishop, like he visited, spent a lot of time visiting the units, the you know the different units to help support the other young men's yeah. program across the state, yeah. and I think in a positive way. Yeah. How would you describe just the the geographics of your ward and and the demographics? You know, is it a large ward? Is there a mix of different uh, different income levels or that type yeah. of thing? How would you describe all that? Yeah, we have about. An average, we're probably around eight market moments. So about eight people attend each week. So not small, but not large. Somewhere kind of in between. Mm-hmm. Our demographic is towards the older side. Actually, we have. It's, I guess it's a nice mix. It used to be the case, you know, ten years ago, it was like a, a really old ward where like a lot of people were older. And we've had some young families move in, and so it's a nice mixture. But with like, I have like, I think what's been a blessing to me as a bishop is that I've got a core of older members. And when I say older, we're looking, you know, 60 plus, a real core of solid, hardcore members that are a blessing that they're not, they just make life a lot easier as bishop. And our, de- our size of our ward in terms of like demographic, like the kind of geography, it's not that big. Actually, we've got quite a small kind of area. So that's quite, it's helpful in a sense. It's not the smallest, but you know, it's helpful with visiting teaching and that yeah. kind of, those kind of programs. So you can get around uh, without, uh, Packing a lunch and uh, <laughs> and wondering yeah. if you'll be home uh, the same day, right? So yeah. Now we've talked about you. You, uh, you mentioned before we recorded that you've created a focus around a unique way of how you do ward ward council, and I'd love for you to share that and break that down. How that works, and maybe others could could apply it in their ward if, it, if they see fit to uh, it would make sense there. Yeah. So for us, you know, everyone's different, but we. We have short, regular ward councils. So we technically, rather than having like an, a long meeting of about an hour and a half, we have short meetings that typically last 30 to 40 minutes at the most. We make an effort to never go over 40 minutes and to try to keep it to 30 minutes. And we keep it just key points. So, you know, if there's a baptism coming approaching, what things we need to do. But like, it's more of a focus on what people are we working with, you know, and just have short rather than long-winded discussions, but short, brief points about, you know, the people and who they're working with, the Relief Society, 
who are you working with you know who are you, are you concerned about what is your plan and we have those i'd say right like every other week every once every other week usually every other week or every other every, once every three weeks and we just have the short point short meetings with the focus that afterwards that we've always got appointments to go to it doesn't always happen for everyone but there is like once people got in the swing of it people realize that you know we have our meetings and it's expected that we go do visits because ultimately talking is great and it is important to have meetings and to plan and to organize but the most important thing we can really do is to love people and you know as they say as elder uckdorf i said you know love is spelt t-i-m-e time and we can give people of our time and if it's just a visit you know on a regular basis and we just found that we were getting more regular visits done and it was having a positive effect Hmm. so so you say how often every other week you do word council yeah so recently it's been more once every three weeks but for the definitely for the first six months it was probably every other week and then how i think a lot of leaders be listening and saying i'd love to do short word councils but uh, people won't stop talking or you know just gets out of my control so uh, what uh what boundaries have you put out there so that that expectation is met? So we make sure that like, that, you know, there's certain discussions that can, you know, for instance, we don't have to have a long wind discussion in World Council that the elders corn presidency can discuss amongst them. You know, that they, we can make a point and that if it doesn't need to be discussed in World Council and it's something that the elders corn presidency can deal with, that they deal with that. We, they discuss what they need to briefly, then they go away and deal with it. And it's more about, we're quite, you know, we're quite key on, making assignments, recording the assignments and following up. And that's been you know, really key. So it's an eternal struggle for all members and leaders of the church. But everyone know again, like I'm, I'm quite firm when I get in the zone, like I'm quite firm and I'm all, not necessarily cut people off, but um, there's a sense of urgency that, okay, what's the point? Who, you know, who you meet in, what's your plan? Mm-hmm. And that we keep it brief, not long winded. And do you feel like that's uh, like that, that sense of urgency is that, you come from just from your personality and people sort of uh, feel that as you're running the meeting or is there something more to that that even your counselors are able to keep that sense of urgency if, if you're not there? I'd probably say if I'm being honest, that's kind of my personality mostly. But typically we found that when, when I'm not there, like, you know, if the bishop's not there, I'm not saying like the bishop's a be all and end all, you know, I'm telling you now, you know, it's definitely not. I'm definitely not. But it, when you haven't got the bishop there, it's hard. The meetings aren't quite the same. So it's, you know, we always usually are, you know, if we're going to have a meeting, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm pretty certain I'll be there. And I'd say it's like I said, the sense of urgency probably comes that they've, after a while, I come to expect that there's a sense of urgency because we want to not kind of want to cut through, make the key points, make the key assignments, and we want to get out and do the important, most important part, which is the visits. Mm. And that's kind of where, the, you know, with a bit of time, it took a few months, but we got there. Yeah. Yeah. And so it took some time for, because obviously it came from a, you know, f- with a new bishop coming in, they had a different approach toward council, I would imagine for, not that it was a bad one, but just a different one. And yeah. you sort of had to, you know, show your style and, and how you wanted to run things and that took some time. Yeah. And then we, t- exactly. And it's not that we always have those meetings, but I'd say, you know, once every few months, we do have the long meeting where you have to, where we, you know, we'll sit and it won't be a meeting where we know we say look it's going to be a long meeting we're going to discuss quite a few points new to and we'll have the proper long meeting where we can take time and people can you know embellish on their points yeah so that is needed you know that is needed at times definitely anything else as far as the do you have a do you live and die by an agenda does that also help you keep keep things moving yeah and how does that work like, How's yeah so like, I, like i've got a really like um clark and he's called like and he will like he's pretty he's just good at what he does and he'll call me at least a couple of days before or he said look i don't care how you send it to me whether we do it over the phone or you text me or email me just you know get your points over and he'll print off an agenda and have it set so i I know there's an agenda and that does help having like we know exactly rather than turn up and what we're going to talk about i know the key point questions i'm going to ask that you know the ward council on the certain assignments we always follow up with assignments from the previous weeks and that you know he's really good at that and that is really effective nice so you've communicated with him pretty directly that you expect an agenda and and this is your clerk you said yeah so in, before i just had to like get my phone out i've made a few points the day before that that day just the key point that questions and points i want to raise 
But no, he's just hot on it. That's something unfortunate. I've got someone who's hot on that and he's really good like that. Nice, nice. And that's a, you know, such a crucial step that I know I learned that to really communicate that to your clerk and, and uh, not just assume, oh, they're the clerk, so they'll know to do that. And then, you know, it doesn't happen. And then you just become a meeting that never has an agenda. But really, you know, giving them that that opportunity to step up to the plate and uh, and provide that uh, agenda. Yeah. That's going to help you get through that meeting. He's, yeah, he's very good as well. He like he record the notes as well. So it isn't the case that what well, I think we're all guilty of have been at times is where we've we've talked and we've no one's really kept notes or they're not really followed up on. But I can make a key point just like he'll keep the notes really well. And so I know next agenda, I don't have to ask, he'll give me a print off of the meets the notes from the previous meeting. And so I know I look at the assignments and like, right, first thing, you know, the first ten minutes we say, right, so and so, high priest group leader how did it go with this assignment from two weeks ago and we go that way so that's just been massively beneficial how do you approach do you have you know one thing that i always struggle with is you know it's one thing to have an agenda but then you know an auxiliary leader brings up a something else that's not on the, the agenda that they feel like it just needs i just need to talk about this or yeah. discuss it uh, have you how do you gauge that and, and control that i think Within the meeting, I get you get a sense if it's something that is you know there's some things that they might just pop up that we didn't want expecting that you do have to discuss and it is an important matter and you know there are times like I said we usually try and keep it at thirty minutes but I've got that fle- we have that flexibility of maybe an extra ten minutes where we, with those kind of things pop up which they do I'd say most weeks but I think as well if there's one thing I've massively learned because I was poor at it in this year is that communication and doing the PPIs. Mm-hmm. I wish someone had really expressed how important they are and just kind of, so we have this wall council. Sometimes you get a feeling with it, something that we need to discuss the wall council. Or really, I can have a PPI of the relief site presidency and it'd be better for us to discuss it there yeah. and where I can diverge stuff to them. Nice. To those PPI meetings. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to that. So you're saying that as you are faithful in holding PPIs, that, that minimize some of those random comments. Because uh, I think a lot of wards, the auxiliary leader feels like Ward council is the only time they really have the bishops here, right? Yeah, and don't get me wrong. Like I've been guilty of that. Where like and it was a learning curve for me that like having the PPIs was good and making the time for them because just that kind of feeling of kind of being connected and and you might think it's something a simple point you want to mention them, but yeah, it's, for them to know that it just kind of having that communication, consistent communication, is really vital because. I've had it where like I haven't had a PPR and I've left, you know, like, I haven't had a PPR young men's president for several months and now he's really struggling. I'm like, why haven't I been on top of this already? Yeah, I like that. And, you know, we'll come back to PPIs in a second, but I want to ask you as far as you said visits. So we've talked about ward council and then you go do visits. Do you do this as, yeah. uh, you know, your clerk or secretary is handing out names for them to go visit? What's the preparation look like in order to go from a formal meeting to out to visit? So that usually is down to them. So like my advice has normally been like, can I, I was home teach somebody who's on your home teaching list or somebody, you know, you're concerned about in your auxiliary, you know, relief society has concerned about a certain sister. So visit, you know, so I encourage them to visit the people they're concerned about and use pre not de- now. I don't, maybe back in the day it worked to treat, but nowadays turning up just isn't effective 90% of the time. And there's certain families where it's the only way. But most people, you know, it's definitely best to organize an appointment so that straight after, you know, you know, you've got a uh, meeting's going to end about 7.30ish and you've got an appointment about eight o'clock. Yeah. And that's the way that we encourage it. So all your visits are are set before the, the ward council even starts? Typically, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And then do you go out, uh, you know, so because in, in the ward council, does the, like the primary president go with the young women's president or do you go as companions? Yeah, so we- we leave that to them, but typically the, the Relief Society presidency, you know, will go with each other, or you mean like or one or two of them might arrange. So, because sometimes we'll have, like, say they've got an appointment, you know, I don't mind them, they're going to bring their first council or second council, you know, we're open to that. And some people have other wards and leaders might be, oh, you have more than just the presence. And for our ward, you know, I'd, I'm happy for that to happen. And sometimes you're right, sometimes it's the young women's president who goes out with, you know, the prime president. But typically, they'll bring one that, you know, someone to go visit with. Nice. So they've already thought that through it. And so do you have presidency members, you know, more than one presidency member sitting in on ward council or they're just waiting outside or. Typically we allow them in. Like I'll give you, funny enough, we don't, 
we didn't just allow. So we had an issue a few months back where we were, obviously in ward council, you can sometimes discuss private matters to a point. With ward council, you've got people, you know, leaders that generally are trustworthy and that it's confidential stuff that sometimes you talk about. And something, you know, there was what happened. Someone had gone away and talked and shared openly with other people things from the meeting that they shouldn't have. And when you know quickly, you can identify the you know where this issue was, and it just became a case of that. I spoke to the prime president that time and said, "Please, you know, from now on, just make sure that that sister isn't attend the meeting." So if I know like a counselor is going to be there, you know, I would just make sure it's one that we know we can trust. Gotcha. Yeah, you just have to be uh, sensitive with what what you discuss and go from there. Yeah. Nice. Great. Anything else with visits uh, that dynamic? I think it's intriguing, a different idea and an effective idea. It sounds like anything else that, that we haven't hit on that would be important to clarify if, if others are wanting to try this. Not necessarily about the visits, but the PPIs, I had something I was going to mention. I don't know if you want to talk about them now. Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk about your PPIs. Is this something, how are they structured? How do you set them up? Yeah. And once you're in that, those PPIs, what's the agenda look like? So for me, for the PPI is like our first, the first thing I'll do, like, is like, it's to kind of, it's to see how they are as a person. So we can, you know, we could just straight, we could jump straight into, you know, release site or whatever. But I always find the thing I'll do, and it's like a typical question. I'll say, like, how are you? And then I'll stop. And before I even start, I'll say, and when I say, how are you doing? I don't mean just give me the kind of surface answer, but I said, how are you really doing? And that's one for me, that's one thing that's helped break some barriers and where people have, where they probably wouldn't have, have kind of opened up about something that's going on in their personal life or things they are generally worried about. And that's, for me, it's always been a great way to start. Yeah. And then what do you talk about next? You, and, and that, I guess, is five minutes or so. I think they're, they're very, like, some, like, my, my prime pregnancy, like, they're just solid. Like, so, like, it's not often, like, she's really, in, she's the type of personality that our meetings won't be that long. She do, runs it, like, operates it really well. And you typically, like, it varies from person to person. Some people are more kind of chatting issues but normally my ppis are primary aren't long and they're not necessarily as scheduled as i'm not i'd say where i probably should be better is scheduling them and having like a more of a planned plan ppis in place where normally it would be a case of i'll arrange one maybe like the sunday before say hey can we meet this week sometime and have like five minutes or can we meet after church yeah you don't have like every second sunday is really society present nothing scheduled like that though you say you may, no. it wouldn't be a bad idea, but you just sort of handle it uh, every month or so. You uh, yeah. you reach out to them or they reach out to you and, and you meet. Yeah. So for instance, Relief Society, we've had to meet regularly recently because there's a number of you know, kind of issues going on with uh, certain systems. They've got certain things. They just want to, more case of just saying, look, this is what we think. This is the issue we've got. This is what we're thinking of doing. Are you okay? We're just kind of like, just kind of sounding things off, kind of approval in a sense. Awesome. Um, but I mind them, they're not normal unless I've got like sometimes I've got a burning you know thing that I need to discuss with them. But usually it's kind of I don't have a planned agenda. It's just kind of see how they are personally and then see how their organisation is doing any issues that we want to discuss. Awesome. Well, uh, anything else with PPIs that uh, that's important for us to understand uh, to kind of get a sense of how you approach them? No, I feel like that's sorted for me. Okay, <laughs> and I know it's getting late there. Uh, it's just, no. <laughs> but. Uh, I think this has been great. Well, Dan, I appreciated you, uh, you know, taking the time out of your busy schedule. Obviously, it's it's late there, and uh, I'm I'm gonna go get uh, ready for dinner as you get ready for bed. But uh, <laughs> I appreciate you giving some time here to discuss some of these principles and really, you know, just your journey of uh, through a, a faith transition, as I like to call it, rather than a faith crisis. Because the more we talk about it, especially those you know current bishops that have have experienced some of these things. It's important that we bring some dialogue to that and destigmatize uh what it is to doubt. You know, we we I think on the surface or on paper we want to say that, but to hear a real story is is sure is encouraging and helpful. So I I applaud you in your journey and and uh regardless of where you ended up, you know, uh, whether in the bishop's desk or or outside the church, you know, nonetheless your journey's validated and and uh, a good one for sure. As you have now, you're a year uh, into serving as as bishop. Before that, as elders court president, as you look back on your time being a leader and serving and leading, how has it made you better disciple or follower of Jesus Christ? That's a great question. I think for me, it's made me less judgeful and critical. I think I was definitely guilty of 
when people left the church before I'd had my faith crisis, when people left or struggled, like I was quite critical of them and, you know, I wasn't, and I just kind of was quite harsh on them. When now, like, I kind of felt, I know how they felt and know how real, and I can understand how they got there and how they made the decision that it, for them, they no longer, you know, wanted to do church and that was no longer their choice. And for me, I think it's just kind of that, don't, you know, not necessarily to have that, you know, be harsh and criticize them or tell, and for me, definitely not to, but to be understand and listen to them. I think that's the, the key term here. People have got issues. Don't go in, you know, seek first, understand, then to be understood. Yeah. That is such a key principle. You know, you sometimes we go in with our preconceptions, what they're, we know what these problems, we've heard what the problem is, this is what I reckon the solution would be, but really when you hear it, it's just a completely different ball game and to always just listen. A big thank you to Dan Conway for allowing me to interview him. It's always encouraging to hear different accents on the Leading LDS podcast. If you know an international leader or a fantastic, prolific leader, please reach out to us at leadinglds.org slash contact and share with us who we should interview it. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.